This is the St. Long Baptism Podcast Channel. This is episode number 61. The topic is going to be You alone are responsible for your own salvation. But first a prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, Amen. All that I am, all that I have, and all that I do shall be consecrated to the service, honor, glory, and exaltation of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and the Heavenly Kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray, Immaculate Heart of Mary, please pray for us. Sacred Heart of Jesus, please pray for us. In Jesus' name I pray, Immaculate Heart of Mary, please pray for us. Sacred Heart of Jesus, please pray for us. Amen. So, the, the, um, the topic for today is actually mem- uh, mentioned in um, St. Paul's epistle to the Philippians. I'll put the particular quote in the show notes. And everything that I'm talking about on this podcast is interrelated, like most spiritual principles. Everything I'm talking about is interrelated. One of the things that's interrelated is is some of the principles that I've outlined in previous episodes are also outlined for the Catholic understanding, and I'm talking pre-Vatican II Catholicism, of your salvation. As I've stated in the past, um, this there, there, there's a thing going around in American Protestantism, and it was kind of going around um, when I first became a Protestant in the early 2000s, where you say the little Jesus prayer and you're good. You're getting into heaven. You're quote-unquote, in inverted commas, acknowledging Jesus as your Lord and Savior, And that's it. Nothing else. You're good. You're getting into heaven. And there's... There's a lot to unpack there. Now me personally, the church that I was baptized in did not preach this junk. Now, they... They might have been... Protestants, but they at least had the basic understanding um, this is what the pastor taught from the pulpit was that baptism is your beginning and once you start you're to grow, grow in holiness and piety he said holiness but in the Catholic sense there's also piety too so 
as I never get tired of saying, even people who are materially wrong can have elements of truth. And as I never get tired of acknowledging in all charity, um, the, pa- the Protestant pastors that I've had, um, a couple of the cat, uh, Vatican II sect priests that I've had were... I'm going to be charitable in saying that they were doing what they thought was right. And then some of the uh, Protestants who raised me when I was a foster kid had it right. Or, well, they, they were practicing their religion as you know, sincerely, they they weren't being fakers. They they were being sincere. However, um, as I said earlier, I was keeping track. Um, at at the time when I got baptized into Protestantism, I. Uh, I was barely making rent. I mean, I was barely doing it. And I couldn't afford, like, magazine subscriptions. So what I would do is, is the local central library, um, for you younger types, you're, you're, this is going to be, like, confusing to you. But every library at a certain time before, I want to say, the mid after around, I want to say, 2008, 2009, had a magazine section where that month's magazine was kept in a, a little plastic binder, and you could not check that out. You could only read it to the library. The back issues, they kept underneath, and a shelf underneath that month's issue, and you could check out those books. So I was taking out Books like Christian, uh, I'm sorry, magazines like Christianity Today, and and a couple others, and you know, um, because I was working a temporary job, I had my weekends off. So like on a Saturday morning, if I wasn't helping out one of my fellow Protestants from my church out doing something, I, I would be reading one of these magazines. And as I said, my Protestant church did not teach this, oh, say the little Jesus prayer, you don't even need to get baptized and you're good. But I will make the disclaimer because Protestantism is subjective. Different people in different churches, their belief systems um, while they may agree on some things, on other things, they're wildly divergent. So I'm not saying all Protestant churches did this. But I remember reading, it might have been Christianity Today, about this new phenomena where you said the little prayer... And you were you were saved. That also was through Christianity Today that I learned about mega churches. Now Rick Warren had wrote his Purpose Driven Church. I want to say around ninety five, and I was a Protestant around two thousand one. So we're talking six years later. But event, uh, 
I guess he was so successful with that quote-unquote concept that um, it actually became a part of the Protestant culture in America. Now, this isn't about the talk about, you know, the, the, the Protestant culture. Those of you who are interested can um, leave me a note on my Telegram handle, which is located in my podcast description on all the platforms I'm on. And I've got it right there, and you can drop me a note. But for right now, we'll just leave it to say that this is not about the Protestant culture in America. Um, What this is about is the concept I'm trying to make this simple and it really is simple. Unfortunately, most people don't pay attention to this sort of thing. So a lot of the things I'm going to be talking about, they're going to be scratching their heads, you know, if they're uninitiated, they're going to be like, what's this guy talking about? We don't know what he's talking about. The heresy of once saved, always saved, which is what the little Jesus prayer is all about, is from the era of Calvinism. Calvinism, which was invented by John Calvin in Geneva in the 1500s during the Protestant Revolt. And for those of you Protestants who are laboring under delusion that John Calvin was a Protestant, you know, an undercover Protestant, and he just burst out. You know, he just burst out and he made popular Protestantism. No, that's not true. If you read any unbiased biography of John Calvin, John Calvin, when he revolted from the Catholic Church, because that's what he did, was actually what is known in the Catholic Church as a canon lawyer. Now, he wasn't a religious canon lawyer because in order to be a religious canon lawyer, you actually have to be in a religious order. You either have to be a priest or a monk. What he was, though, was a secular canon lawyer, which means that in his time in place, because there, there, there was a lot of interplay between the kingdoms of Western and Central Europe with Rome because basically Western and Central Europe were Catholic, individual kingdoms would hire a canon lawyer to advise a king or a prince on the laws of the church. And that's what John Calvin is. And I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on his theology, but anyone who reads his Institutes, which is basically his book of doctrine, can not help 
but see why he was a canon lawyer. He has a very legalistic mind. Very black and white. And there, there, there's no shades. And it's a... He, in, his, in his version of Christianity, there, there is no mercy. Now I'll explain why I'm saying this. He was the one, well, both him and Luther both came up with predestination, I want to say around the same time. But at this time, the Protestant revolters were sending letters amongst each other and, and their books were being circulated. So, you know, they were flavoring each other's doctrines. But um, in John Calvin's case, and like I said, I think to a certain degree, Luther's case too, they believed in what is known as double predestination. In other words, God, when he makes a human being, he decides the minute he makes a human, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going to hell, you're going to heaven, hell, 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 heaven, heaven, hell, hell, hell. Before a person even said, you know, gets put on this earth. Now, even an ignorant pagan like myself could see the contradiction in that. Especially nowadays when, and like I said, because Protestantism is subjective, not objective, there are going to be variations. It's just the nature of the beast. But, you know... There, there, there was a lot of talk about, oh, Jesus loves you. Oh, Jesus loves you. He loves you. And it's true. He does love you. Now, when I use the mocking tone, I'm not mocking Jesus. I'm mocking the heir of the Protestants who say this because at the same time, these very same people will say, well, if you did the Jesus prayer, prayer you were predestined. There's no free will. You were predestined. You didn't have a choice. And the Catholic Church teaches a very subtle form of predestination. Now, I want to make very, very clear that this is my understanding of how Catholic... Uh, the predestination in Catholic theology works. Um, heaven forbid that any priests or prelates should listen to this. And this this guy's a moron. And I I would say your your eminence or, or father. Yes, you're absolutely right. I am. That's why I'm stressing this is not 100% infallible. This is the theory of a barely educated layman but my understanding of how catholic predestination works is it's like 
certain saints and the Virgin Mother, the, the Blessed Mother Mary, she definitely was predestined. I mean, she was definitely, she was married. I'm sorry, she was made to carry the Lord Jesus. She, and it couldn't have been any other way because Jesus Christ is literally holiness itself. And this is, this is not another defense of the, um, the Marian theology of the Catholic Church, but if she had been a normal woman, it would have killed her. The minute Jesus, the minute the Holy Ghost put himself inside of her, it would have killed her. Because we ourselves carry original sin and holiness cannot have any any contact with sin, it would have killed them, kill us. We could have the best intent in the world. We're flawed. So it could not have been any other way. She needed to be predestined. And she was predestined without the stain of original sin. But anyway, I digress. But there are certain saints. And I... My own personal, well, since we're sticking and I'm making it absolutely certain that I'm saying that this is my understanding, is certain saints are predestined, uh, I keep saying certain, all saints are predestined. All saints are predestined. And the average layman who's pious and devout or becomes pious and devout who accepts God's grace you have to remember who we're talking about here we're talking about the God of everything everything that ever has existed ever exists now and ever will exist we're talking about this God so before he even did the whole time and space thing, he already knew. He already knew which of his creations, and I'm talking about humans, obviously, would accept his grace and who would reject his grace. Now, not that... I ain't going to lie. I, I've said in previous episodes that the whole predestination thing, I was prejudiced against it in so far as um, the way Calvin lays it out this doesn't sound just, and I'll get to that aspect in a minute, but from my aspect, because my life hadn't been a bed of roses, once again, disclaimer, I'm not saying I had the hardest life. I'm just saying for me, it was no bed of roses. I, you know, in my self-pity, I thought that I'd been cursed by God. And so, the opportunity to make my own decision about God 
to me sounded, you know, you know, I, I um, and I, I will get to the Calvinistic aspect, but to me, I rejected it out of hand because it just, it, 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 it sounded too tyrannical. And I was thinking of the Calvinistic version, not before I kind of got, and honestly speaking, I've heard a lot of Sedevacantus priests and bishops say that the whole mystery of predestination is kind of like the Trinity and transubstantiation. We can get the broad outlines, but the rest is up to God. And, and, and Catholic dogma states that as long as we assent, not, I, I want to stress this, assent, not understand the concept, that's all God expresses us. Matter of fact, if you read the fathers of the church and the saints, they tell you the same thing that, you know, you just need to assent and, you know, it's, by the way, I think in the Old Testament, God tells several of the, uh, the Hebrew leaders, you know, it's not up for you to understand what I am doing. It is just up to you to do what I'm telling you to do. As far as I know, well, I don't want to go there, but anyhow. So, let's go back to Calvin's version of predestination. Does this sound, first of all, just, just on a common sense level, on a common sense level, honestly speaking, and I mean absolutely honestly speaking, who would want to serve a God that made you just so he could throw you in hell? And to make matters worse, the illiterates that practice, the, the, the theological illiterates, and by the way, I'm not including my, uh, I won't say I'm a complete theological illiterate, uh, but I'm definitely no doctor of the church. But the guys who, the Protestants who preach this garbage are absolutely theologically illiterate as well as their sense of justice is messed up. Because who wants to practice a God, what, or does this sound like justice, more or less divine justice, that a God picks people or makes people expressly for putting them into hell. And the reason I'm talking about theological illiterates is when I would get into arguments with my fellow Protestants and saying, well, wait a minute, does this sound like justice to you? They would say something along the lines of, well, we are, we are his creations and he is the, the potter. He can do with us what he wants to. Now, that is a very extreme version of what the Catholic Church teaches about God's sovereignty. Anybody who's read the Bible, either New or Old Testament, knows one of God's titles is justice itself. Meaning that he, when he lays down the laws of justice, 
on earth. When he lays down the laws of justice on earth, there literally has to be justice in them. And for any Protestants who might be listening right now, I want to ask you something. How just does it sound of a God who makes people just for hell? What would you think, and this is particularly aimed at the Protestants, let's just say the U.S. government, the U.S. government had the power that as soon as a person was born, they could mark that person for either incarceration or execution from the moment they were born. It was, it was you know, they could pick and choose. Does that sound like justice to you? And that they would make the person that was chosen, they would write laws knowing that in the future that person was going to end up breaking one of those laws so they could arrest him or execute him. Does that sound like your version of justice? And if you say anything other than no, you're lying to yourself. You know that's not justice. You know, the people who have been railroaded to death row and executed, that's not justice. You know, some people call it perverted justice. It's not even perverted justice. It's not justice. And some people add to this error by saying, well, he's probably guilty of other crimes that we're unfamiliar with. Well, that's between him and God. How would you feel if to make an example out of you, you had some secret sins, which nobody but you and God knew about it, and um, God decided that he was going to... to uh, give you a punishment which had nothing to do with your private sins. And by the way, so people don't get the misapprehension that I'm just pulling stuff out of my head or my butt. Your secret sins, according to Catholic dogma, are dealt with at your private judgment that you haven't confessed to. If there, if there are secret sins the moment you die that you've engaged in that you have not confessed to you deal with those be, you know between God and you for your personal judgment now uh, on an extreme level you can take God's sovereignty as a you could take it to an extreme form and say, well, God, God's our maker. He could do whatever he wants to. And to make a more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Extreme example. I want to ask you predestinationists a question, you Calvinists. If God predestined everything did he predestinate abortion where all those babies died think about it now 
Think about it. Did he predestinate those babies to, to get murdered in the womb? Those babies hadn't even been born yet. Those babies did not even, you know, they're literally innocent souls, but they get murdered in the womb. And you're going to say, because let's follow your logic to its logical conclusion. God chooses from the, from the beginning of time what happens. And... Those babies that got aborted, and they're, you know, um, I, I, I really don't keep track of the abortion statistics, but it's, it's been in the dozens of millions, maybe even in the hundreds, but I know dozens of millions. These babies have been murdered. But I suspect a lot of the Calvinists will hem and haw and try to divert the topic. Here's another thing I want to ask you, you Calvinists. Um, or I'm sorry, I don't want to ask you. So I'm going to go back to, to the original point I was working on, which is the Calvinistic God is not a just God and he's not a loving God because a just and loving God would not make souls strictly for destruction. And for those of you, once again, who argue, well, you know, God is um, sovereign. Catholicism does not do deny his sovereignty, but they don't turn him into... Uh, they don't turn God in, into a, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Um, help me out, Lord Jesus. Help me out, Mother Mary. Uh, what is it? Um, what is the word I'm looking for? Arbitrary. Thank you, Lord Jesus and Mother Mary. Thank you. An arbitrary, an arbitrary, cold, and unloving God. Tyrant. Tyrant. An arbitrary tyrant, and I'm speaking on the secular level, is the kind of ruler who would go through the streets of his city in disguise with his goon squad. And just literally pick people at random for either imprisonment or execution. That, that, is, that is literally an arbitrary tyrant. God is not like that. And anyone who tells you otherwise is, is mistaken at best. At worst, they're delusional. And anyone who holds on to this belief in sincerity, I would have to say that somewhere in their soul there's something wrong. How can you invert the Lord Jesus Christ and turn him from a loving and just God into an arbitrary, hateful, 
uh, tyrant because he has he he has the sovereignty. He gets to do whatever he wants to. And for those of you who try to make this stupid argument, well, the kings were sovereign. Yes, they were. They were sovereign. However, before the Protestant revolt, they had the check of the Catholic Church upon them for that very reason. So they would not turn into arbitrary, um, hateful tyrants. And some of them were so thirsty for power that they literally turned against the Catholic Church so they would have no one to answer to. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting to the... I'm getting to the... Um, to the title, or the topic, I should say. The topic of this particular episode. Now, another error, and this is glaringly obvious, you know, because I... My uncle was a Calvinist. There are several scriptures, not just from St. Paul, but St. Peter, and in the Gospels, if I'm not mistaken, where the apostles and Jesus Christ himself say, you are responsible for your own salvation, which contradicts this whole predestination of Calvinism. Because if everybody's pre-double-destinated, number one, Jesus Christ would not have needed to come to earth. He, the people that he predestinated, he knew that they would be getting to heaven and the damned would be going to hell. He wouldn't need to sacrifice himself at all. Secondly, If you go to, and, and, and Calvinism, the predestination, well, all, Calvinism links up to sola scriptura, read the Bible as you will. Well, if you're not chock full of cognitive dissonance, or you're not, whether knowingly or unknowingly, either knowingly or unknowingly fooling yourself, how can you say, well, if it's in the Bible, I believe it, and ignore the um, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, where it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, it, th use, use your gray matter people here. Try why would God put that in his Bible if everybody is predestinated? He wouldn't need to. He wouldn't need to have St. Paul say that. Because God would know, uh, I mean, God does know his own. But what my, my point is being, he, he, would, he would have a bunch of automatons doing what he wanted. He wouldn't need to put it in his book of holy writ Oh, by the way, you got to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, when I was a Protestant, I had run into later Calvinists who tried to explain away this very large contradiction. I found their arguments unconvincing. 
Because at the base of it, either the Bible means what it says or it doesn't. And when Luther raised his BS about Bible alone, his, his official claim for that was, well, the Catholic Church is obscuring what the Bible actually teaches. And if you go back to his, reading his theology, he said the Bible means what the Bible says. He literally said that. Now, but being a Protestant and not doing this out of God's will but his own, when the Bible, when the literal Bible contradicted what he wanted done or taught, then it wasn't his teachings that are wrong. It was, well, the Bible's wrong on that. Uh, there, it, there's, it's, it's a mistake. It's a mistranslation. Pick your lame excuse. But the, and, and here's another thing. This is what makes Luther one of my... One of the people that, I, that I'm trying not to hate, but it's very easy to. Because the Catholic Church... You gotta remember, the Catholic Church has been around up until Luther broke for 1,500 years. Nowhere in those 1,500 years... Did the Catholic Church ever teach the Bible does not mean what it does not mean what it says it means? It never taught that. Saint Jerome, who translated the Latin Vulgate that the Catholic Bible is based on, himself said, Scripture is shallow enough that babies can can roam around in it. When he's talking about babies, he's talking about children and new converts. And he said, deep enough for learned theologians to ponder the mysteries for decades. And you can Google it. Of course, there are probably going to be some prizes. Oh, he's a Catholic. I ain't listening to him. Do what you want. Anyhow, so, this, this whole thing, it's not, it's not just doctrinally wrong, it's not just spiritually wrong, but on a common sense level. And sincerely, because... Before last summer, I had actually run into some people on YouTube who were literal Calvinists, and that's what they called themselves. And when I laid out the case against Calvinism, they never, they never tried to refute my points. And even if they had tried, they couldn't have done it. Because just on, and you don't even need to be a Christian to have a basic sense of justice. Pagans have a basic sense of justice and righteousness. But because they're either worshiping the wrong God or, you know, whatever, 
it's going to be imperfect, but they have a sense of injustice or justice and in, injustice. In, in and at the very bottom line, a God, and I'm not gonna, I'm not going to get tired of saying this, a God who indiscriminately makes people for hell is not any God who deserves love, adoration, or respect any more than you would give Stalin love, adoration, or respect because he was an arbitrary tyrant. Oh, and this is my historical autism. Guys like Kim Jong-il's dad and Stalin, there are older generations, I think for the Stalinists, the the parents or the grandparents are dead, but like the children think that Stalin, you know, they give him love and adoration. Despite the evidence to the contrary. And there are a bunch of North Koreans who, who would swear up and down that um, Kim Jong-il's dad and his granddad were the best thing for North Korea since the sliced bread. And they mean this unironically. They literally mean it unironically. And they um, they literally love these tyrants because they've been brainwashed too. But that's not the purpose of, of what I'm going to finish up with here. So, I've already established that we are to work out our fear, I'm sorry, our salvation with fear and trembling, which does not indicate a predestinate soul. One thing I do want to clear up. When I talked about earlier the layman, the pious and devout layman who weren't quite saints, and, and because God is sovereign, but the Protestants, like everything else, twist that sovereignty to their own purposes. He has foreknowledge because, hello, author in time and space, everything, molecules, atoms, everything, he foreknows. And by the way, <laughs> this is... This is what makes me laugh about Protestants because they, they really love their St. Paul. Except, of course, when he contradicts what they believe. But what, another quote from St. Paul is, who God foreknew. Foreknew. And that, I, I think that's the King James Version of foreknowledge. But basically, he says, who God foreknew, he predestinated to salvation. Now, because the game in Protestant land is you take a passage and you basically decide what it means, some people are going to say, well, see, see, he said predestination. He said predestination. In the Catholic understanding of uh, predestination and foreknowledge, a pious and devout layman because he knows all, everything. He knows who is going to accept his call, when they are going to accept it, how he is going to give them the graces necessary to get to heaven. 
And I would say, once again, I'm not claiming to be a theologian here, but I would say that this is, it's, it is predestination, but in the loosest sense of the term. And I was talking to another set of contest and I said, foreknowledge and predestination are two separate things. But a lot of people get it twisted, and they do. Because you have to use your, your, your common reasoning here. Along the lines of what I was talking about, that God knows who would accept His grace and how He would you know, give them the graces and whether they would persevere or not. Like I said, in, in the loosest sense of the terms, it is kind of predestination in the sense that without God's grace, you cannot persevere to heaven. However, this is foreknowledge also, and I want you to think about this carefully. God also knows the people who are going to accept His grace and for whatever reason turn away from that grace at a later time. Don't believe me? Go to the early church fathers. There was a couple of them who, if they hadn't become heretics, would have been doctors of the church. Now, off my top of my head, I can't remember their names. And because I try not to talk on stuff, I'm not 100%, well, at least 95% sure of. I, I choose not to speak on these things. But these, these two... Great, well, they, 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 started out, they, they started out as great theologians. And eventually they fell into heresy. And Bishop Sanborn, because I've listened to his talks, when he gives to his seminary students, has said, if these guys hadn't gone heretic, not only would they have been doctors of the church, they would have been saints. Think about that. A person who's on the road for sainthood can turn away from God's grace and fall into error. Anyhow, I, I'm afraid I spent a little much, too much time on the whole predestination thing, but that is my, um, th this is the meat of what I'm getting into here. So, I think a lot of the reason why once saved, always saved is so popular. And 
there's no way to categorize it because we're talking about individual human beings. But I think there's like maybe two or three major points why people choose to believe this garbage. Number one, because we've been trained from our mother's milk to seek convenience. How convenient is it that you visit your local, it doesn't have to be a mega church, it could be your storefront church, um, go to a service, Pray with the preacher the Jesus prayer, and that's it. You're in heaven. You're always saved. Nothing you could do. You could leave that church, um, steal a gun, break into a store, take some female hostages, rape them, murder them, murder the rest, empty the tills, Get sent to prison and get executed, but because you said that little prayer, hey, you're going to heaven. Now, the, the Calvinists say, well, that person wasn't really saved. How, how does that work? How, how does that work? If you're preaching once saved, always saved, how does that work? And I have met some Calvinists who have... Well, my uncle used to argue the last argument I just used. Well, because I, I often, you know, when we were talking, I'd say, I'd give him that example, and he'd be like, well, that person wasn't really saved. And so my logical question was, well, how do you know the people that are acting saved are actually saved. Maybe on the outside, you know, they're they're putting some money in the poor box, they're visiting the sick and the prisoners and all that. But in their private lives, they may be, you know, doing some horrendous things. So, you know, once again, I think it's just the convenience aspect. Because let's be honest, if being saved in the Catholic sense of the term means you literally become the opposite of what you were and you strive to be more like Jesus. And I'm not going to speak for anyone else. I'm going to speak for myself. This is not, this is not something that's easy. Not if you're you know, giving a sincere effort, it isn't. It's not easy. The, I think the second reason why, um, people fall into this air is, is because as human beings, we do not like self-examination. And if we believe in once saved, always saved, well then, our inner personal faults, you know, our lust, our greed, our um, anger, our pride, our selfishness, our self-centeredness, um... If, if we followed the traditional Catholic teachings on those, we would have to face ourselves every night 
and if we're sincere and actually ask God's help for help. And that would mean going through trials and tribulations and getting tempted and all this other stuff. And that, you know, once again, goes back to work. Now, for, it's much easier, it's much easier if you say the Jesus prayer and once again, you're good. You know, you don't, there's no need for self-examination. There's no need to, for self-improvement unless you decide you need self-improvement. Let's just say you're a 300-pound Baptist and you're married and your wife and your kids are like, gee, Dad, you're kind of fat. You need to lose a little weight. And you decide, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to do whatever exercise regime or diet regime and I'm going to lose this weight. But once again, this is not for godly reasons. This isn't because you're fat because you eat too much. You're doing this because your friends and your family are telling you, hey, you know, you're eating too much and you need to stop. These are personal reasons. They're not for God. And I think another reason why some people go along with this and as I said, everything spiritual is interrelated, even the heirs and heresies. But if you're born into you know, um, my cousins uh, from my uncle that was a Calvinist, as far as I can tell, they're non-Christian. As far as I can tell. But I haven't spoken to them in almost 20 years, so I could be completely wrong. But the last time I spoke with them, you know, um, they're very nice people. Um, actually, one of my cousins I actually partied with when I was a pagan, but um, they're, they're, they're not Christians. But let's just say you're a Calvinist who raised your kids in your belief system and they, they're good kids. And I'm, like I said, I'm not saying my cousins weren't, but they, they, they take up your belief system. Well, this... You know, if you're taking them to Calvinist churches and you're just giving them Calvinist material, they don't know any better. And most people, this is just human nature, this is not a slam. You know, if they're, if they're raised a certain way, it never even occurs to them to question the things that they were raised under. It doesn't, it doesn't occur to them that well, how do I know this is true? How do I know my parents didn't make a mistake? And humans being human, a lot of people recoil at the fact that if they start examining what their parents taught them, that somehow this is not loving their parents or it's not being loyal or good kids. It's very human. 
Very human. But, you know, read read what Jesus said in the uh, book according to St. Uh, Matthew. The gospel according to St. Matthew. Pardon me. You know. You go where the truth leads you. And, and, and it's going to, you know, that's, that's part of the process. Is putting yourself in a position that you're not comfortable in. You know, maybe having to make some tough decisions in your relationship life. Now I've got, uh, I want to say a little under three minutes. So this may, well, it, it's probably going to go slightly over an hour. Matter of fact, I'm going to stop here and then I'm going to wrap up on this, the last part. Give me a sec. Thank you for being so patient. So to close up this episode, I want to reiterate what I think the core, the core fault um, that leads people to follow such a satanic theology like Calvinism. And in case it hasn't already become clear, it's it's the faults of laziness ignorance complacency um or as i said previously some undiagnosed spiritual malady because honestly speaking and I'm talking about the undiagnosed spiritual malady, I don't know how a person can reconcile God being true love and true justice itself, but at the same time believing that he makes souls for destruction for the sole purpose of putting them in hell. And because he's, he is sovereign, and yes, he can do this, that that's okay, that there's no issue with that. To me, if, if a person sincerely holds on to that theology and sees nothing wrong with it, To me, this is just my own opinion, take it for what it's worth, that sounds like that person is spiritually thick. And because we are talking about the spirit, and I'm not a priest or a monk, I can't, you know, I, I well, I wouldn't even begin to because it's presumption, because I wouldn't know the person. I'm just saying that that... To me, that's a sign of a sick soul. 
Because nobody who truly loves Jesus Christ and believes that he is love and justice, the perfect example of it, can, can believe. You know, not if they're being sincere, can hold that belief. They do not, they do, the, the, the concepts literally are oil and water. They do not go together. And just to make it clear, this is not a criticism or personal assault. It's an observation. So take it for what it's worth. But, so I covered the, the laziness, the, uh, the ignorance, and the complacency. And I think that those three faults Well, I'll add one more, although it can kind of go into the ignorance. I'm sorry, when I say ignorance, I mean willful ignorance. Not, not somebody who doesn't know better, has never been taught. But people who, who had a chance, or who have a chance, to look up the facts at hand and choose not to. That's willful ignorance. And um, for my last, my last um, fault would be that I'm going to list would be um, miseducation. Now. Once again, this is kind of like the ignorance thing. There are some people that um, this is all they know and this is all they've been taught. But this goes back to the topic of my original um, topic. In order to work out your salvation in fear and trembling, and St. Paul's epistles are replete with this message, you have to understand what you are being taught and recognize whether or not it is the truth. And the truth is not inconsistent. It has got to be consistent down the line. In other words, on one hand, you can't say, well, um, everything in the Bible's right except the book of St. James and blah, 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 blah. Now, if you're going to say that the Bible is the itinerant word of God and that's what you're basing your belief system, you've got to be 100% um, consistent in that. And if you, if you are running into contradictions, my suggestion would be research other options. Because everybody knows that God's changeless, or 
I should say everybody who considers themselves Christians know that God is changeless. Therefore, He never changes. So, everything that you believe should, should work together consistently to a whole truth. That's what I'm trying to say. And if it doesn't, this is part of salvation. You got to follow God in spirit and in truth. And you have some very hard decisions to make if, if you are sincere in your desire. Um. So. I think I think we can end on that. I think I've covered what you know what needed to be covered, and you know, um, if I miss something or whatever, maybe I'll mention it briefly in another episode. But for right now, I think I've covered this subject pretty well. So, for those of you who listened. Up until this point, and at this point, we're looking at a little over an hour. Thank you for listening, even if you disagree. I thank you. Uh, it's a very, I, I will never get tired of this saying this. It's a very rare person who will disagree with somebody but listen to what they have to say to the end. And honestly speaking, um, I was one of those guys that if, if somebody was saying something that I thought was utterly ridiculous, most of the time, not all, but most, I would just either, I, I would pretend to listen and nod my head, but I was checked out. Or if I was on the interwebs, I'd just go somewhere else. So if you listen for a little over an hour, I appreciate it. And take this for what it's worth. I'm praying for all of you and I would like to see as many of you get to heaven as possible. And I do care as much as a failed individual like myself can care. So thank you for listening. Have a good day. God bless you. Bye-bye.